Hello and welcome to Trails Worth Hiking, the show that brings you some of the most interesting backpacking and trekking routes in the world. I'm your host, Jeremy Pendry. In the first part of the show, we bring you the story and history of a trail. Then we tell you what it's like to hike the trail and how you can do it. Today, we have a bonus episode. So what is a bonus episode? I try to publish an episode every month that brings you a new trail. But from time to time, there may be episodes that cover something a little different. There may be a special place that doesn't have a specific trail that I want to cover, but maybe it's just a place that's worth talking about. Or there may be special topics relating to backpacking and trekking. But then there may be episodes like this one that are variations or alternatives to a trail we've already talked about on the show. Or maybe even an update when I've actually hiked a trail we've talked about that I hadn't hiked before. So let's begin. In episode two, we brought you the High Sierra Trail in California's Sierra Nevada Mountains. And that's a grand adventure that goes from west to east across the Sierra Nevada Range. That adventure required an elaborate car shuttle that can add days to the trip. But there's another way to see this part of the Sierra, an alternative route worthy of its own episode. Instead of ending up on the eastern side of the Sierra, you can make the trip a loop by adding two high mountain passes in two remote and beautiful canyons. In total, this variation on the High Sierra Trail traverses five High Sierra canyons, each of which are amazing in their own way. On this special bonus episode of Trails Worth Hiking, we travel the High Sierra Canyons Loop in Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Parks. Also, if you stick around for the entire episode, at the very end, we have a little special treat for you, which I think you will enjoy. All right. Hope you enjoy the episode. In 2007, I hiked the High Sierra Trail with my friend Tony Wong. In 2010, Tony and I hiked a loop through Dead Man Canyon in Kings Canyon National Park. It was about a 50-mile trip and was really beautiful and one I enjoyed a lot. But there was one thing missing for me from both of these hikes, and that's Cloud Canyon. I kept looking at the map of the area and seeing Cloud Canyon. I was trying to figure out a route to go see it. The fact that there was no easy route told me one thing. It was remote. And that was enough for me to want to go see it. But for years, it never happened. Meanwhile, my kids were growing up, getting stronger, more confident, and becoming more experienced hikers. This year, in 2020, my son Justin wanted to do a bigger trip in the Sierra than he had done before. So Justin is now 17, almost 18 years old. And this past summer, he was more than ready to do a really demanding hike like this one. So off we went. Justin, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me again. No problem. It's great to have you. So we had a pretty good summer of hiking. We didn't do all of our trips together, but overall, we both had three separate trips already. And by the time this show airs, I'm sure we'll have done our fourth trip, which we have planned in Yosemite. How'd the summer of hiking go for you? Uh, it was amazing. Uh, we 
didn't really get to go anywhere because of the whole coronavirus season. So we just got to go hiking a lot in California, but that's some of the best hiking in the world and my favorite activity to do. So I was pretty happy about that. Yeah, we're recording this in late summer 2020. And so as all of you listening know, we've had uh, limitations on travel, particularly here in the U.S., at least travel to outside of the U.S. because of the coronavirus pandemic. But uh, one thing we have been able to do is go backpacking. So we've been doing a lot of it. You and I started the summer with a warm-up trip in the Trinity Alps. What do you think of that? It's a beautiful area. And I was totally not expecting the amount of lush forest and like high snow-capped peaks that there were. I didn't even know that was up there in the Cascades. But it was a beautiful area and a great hike. Yeah, it's not quite. I think Trinity Alps are as far north as where the Cascades start, but they're kind of their own mountain range heading west east or going west to east. It's a little different uh, than Mount Shasta, which is close by, which is part of the Cascades. So, yeah, it's it's a very unique place. Lots of great hiking. And someday I hope to do a, an episode talking about that that area. And then after that, we did the hike that we're going to talk about here today, the hike we're calling the High Sierra Canyons Loop. I'll be honest, this hike doesn't really have an official name, but it's off of the High Sierra Trail. It adds a couple of additional big canyons to the High Sierra Trail. So I've dubbed it the High Sierra Canyons Loop. You think that's a good name for it? Yeah, it probably doesn't have a name because I don't think very many people go on that (laughs) trip as we probably will talk about later. Yeah, there are some stretches there where we didn't see a whole lot of people. In fact, we had Two and a half days where we didn't see anybody, right? Yeah, that was during when we went from Sequoia to Kings Canyon. We were in Kings Canyon for uh, two hiking days and one night, and we didn't see anybody for the entire time. Yeah, we saw more bears than people. We had two bear encounters in that two-day stretch or two-and-a-half-day stretch and zero people encounters. Yeah, that was something I didn't even know was possible, but it was really, really neat. Yeah, especially in California, a lot of people think of Sequoia and Kings Canyon and Yosemite as being very, very crowded places to go. And that's true if you're just in the parking lot at the trailhead. But you get out into the backcountry off of the main routes. And in this case, even the High Sierra Trail route that we were on wasn't very crowded, right? No, not at all. Although there were more people, obviously, than on the part where we looped it around. But yeah, not very many people at all. Yeah. And then after this trip... I went on a separate trip up in Oregon, and you went on a separate trip with uh, your good friend, Graham. Let's talk about that for a second, because you're 17 years old, right? Yeah. Uh, A senior in high school. Yeah. And this was, you went on a trip with just you and Graham, so this was your first trip without adults. How'd that go for you? That was a totally new experience and something that was one of the greatest things I've ever done. Just amazing, and being out that far without any anybody to hold your hand when things get tough. It forces you to be, what's the word? Forces you to be self-sufficient. Yeah, self-sufficient. Yeah, and it was a great experience and a a great bonding experience for Graham and I. And we didn't get tired of each other, so that's a good thing. And you went to the Emigrant Wilderness on that trip, which for those who don't know, California is just north of Yosemite. And it's a beautiful granite kind of look to it area, just like Yosemite, but a little bit less severe in the inclines and declines. So I think it's a really good place to do exactly what you did, which is to sort of strike out on your own for the first time. Um, Not super brutal terrain, but very beautiful, lots of lakes 
and lots of neat uh, meadows and, and passes, uh, but very accessible in some ways, right? Yeah. In the Northern Sierra, it kind of tapers off. It seems like it's a more steep mountain range in the South. And then as it goes North, it turns into more like rolling mountains and eventually into rolling hills. And then it ends about 400 miles north of where it starts. And so we're, we were like maybe halfway up to the point where it was, there were mountains, there were 10,000 plus foot mountains, but they weren't, they weren't nearly as steep as further South. Yeah, that's true. And I would say the emigrant wilderness is sort of North middle. It's, it's definitely, it's North of Yosemite and Yosemite is basically central Sierra, but there's certainly quite a bit more North of that as well. As you get up to Tahoe in that area. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about the trip we're here to talk about today, which is the we'll call what we're calling the High Sierra Canyons Loop. And what we're talking about is some of the biggest canyons in Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Parks, which is two different national parks. Before you went on this trip, did you have a concept of what this area would look like? No. Uh, the furthest I'd ever gone was just the day hikes in the giant forest where all the sequoias are in Sequoia National Park. And so my uh, vision of what it might be like is these huge meadows full of these massive trees. And to be honest, we started in a meadow like that, but that was not the rest of the hike at all. And so for folks who haven't been to this part of uh, the High Sierra, what does it look like? That's hard to describe in words, but it is it is something else. It is, there's a lot of uh, very, very steep, craggy peaks lots of high mountain lakes, passes that seem like you can't go over them until you're walking vertically to get there. Just beautiful meadows and amazing views of all different kinds of mountains, north, south. And of course, some pretty big canyons. (laughs) And quite a few huge glacially carved canyons. And so what what did you love most about it as you think back on the whole trip? I think my favorite part of the trip was just being able to loop such a large area to a point where we kind of got like all the angles of the mountains we were hiking around and the area that we were in of the Great Western Divide. And so I, I really enjoyed getting to know the terrain from all angles. And I feel like if I went back there, I would, I would know where I was. Yeah, that's a really good point. When you do a loop, and this is kind of an interesting loop when you look at it on a map, it's a loop in some senses, but it also zigzags quite a bit because you have to go up and down these big canyons. But ultimately, you're right. You kind of circle one big area, and you do get to know that area really intimately because you do see a lot of the terrain from all different angles over time. And that's that's a great point. It's a kind of satisfying way to see an area to really understand it deeply. Yeah, absolutely. So before we talk about the itinerary for this trip, uh, let me give a little bit of background for those who haven't been to this area. And I'll start by saying in episode two, we talked about the High Sierra Trail. Tony Wong was my guest on that episode, and Tony and I talked extensively about the High Sierra Trail. A good portion of this trip we're here today to talk about is also along the High Sierra Trail, though it deviates from that about halfway through. And in episode two, we talked a lot about the mountain range of the Sierra Nevadas and the history of Sequoia National Park. And so I won't repeat all of that. So if you haven't heard episode two, uh, this is a great opportunity to go back and and listen to that episode and really 
um, get some detailed knowledge about this area. Uh, but let me quickly recap a couple of basic things. One is, as Justin said, this, there's a lot of jagged, huge peaks in this area, granite peaks. The Sierra Nevada mountains are essentially a 400 mile block of granite that's been glacially carved. And so you've got glacially carved canyons and peaks, alpine lakes, evergreen forests, beautiful meadows. And as I mentioned also, this goes through two national parks. The first is Sequoia National Park. And again, I talked about the history in episode two. Sequoia National Park was America's second national park. It was formed in 1890. And as I detailed in, in that uh, in episode two, it was... It came to be out of a scheme to create a utopian society in the Sierra Nevada that put at risk the beautiful sequoia groves that are there and ultimately uh, led to the formation of the National Park to protect those groves. And then later, the backcountry that we're here to talk about was added to the park uh, after those original groves were protected. And as Justin mentioned, there's an area called the Giant Forest. The General Sherman tree is there, which is fairly close to the trailhead at Crescent Meadow, the trailhead for this hike. And that General Sherman tree in the giant forest is the largest tree on earth, largest meaning massive. There are taller trees in the coastal redwoods of California, but it's the largest tree on earth. And in that uh, giant forest, five of the 10 biggest trees on earth are there. Uh, A quick um, summary of Kings Canyon National Park's history. It was also created in 1890 though after the initial creation of Sequoia National Park. And it was originally called General Grant National Park. In 1940, it was expanded and renamed. And its namesake canyon, Kings Canyon, is more than a mile deep, which is 1,600 meters deep, uh, and is a really huge canyon that you can uh, drive a road. The highway goes all the way to the end of the canyon. Uh, That's a different part of the area than we were in. Also, there's quite quite an impressive grove of sequoias in Kings Canyon National Park that's called Grant Grove. And there is the General Grant tree. And the General Grant tree is the second largest tree in the world behind the General Sherman tree. So a lot to see if you want to really see these beautiful and impressive giant sequoia trees. The two parks are administered together from a sort of bureaucratic standpoint. And they so I think of it as Seki, S-E-K-I, which is Sequoia Kings Canyon. And so when you, for example, pay your fee, that's good for both parks. When you get wilderness permits, it's good for both parks. So in some ways, you can think of these two um, really impressive national parks in California as sort of one big national park. Let's talk about hiking this trail. Why should somebody hike this hike? I think there's a lot out there that is hard to believe can even exist. Some of the glacially carved canyons are just so perfectly shaped that it seems like you would have to have people out there, like all the Roman engineer slash army workers like building it or something. But no, it's just thousands and thousands of years of ice just slowly running down. And it's just they're amazing looking canyons and some of the peaks are just, I mean, all of them are just amazing, but some of them are just incredibly huge and just towers over you and the wildlife out there, especially my favorites, the marmots, but there are bears and tons of birds and fish in the streams and just green all around you if you're in the right season, of course. And it's just amazing. Specific to this hike is probably 
I know the Kauaia uh, range is a beautiful mountain range that you go around and you, you get to see for a big portion of the hike. And those are some of my favorite views. Lake Hamilton is an amazing alpine lake that I was not expecting at all. And it just blew my mind. Did I miss any top highlights? I'm not sure. <laughs> I probably <laughs> so, did. Well, you you certainly pointed out some of the, the more impressive things about this hike. The, the beautiful canyons, as you mentioned, they're just like almost a perfect u-shape in some of these canyons we'll talk about them as we go through the hike and so yeah just to see those canyons is really uh, makes this hike worth it another thing that i think about in addition to all the beauty and the impressive natural features is just i like a good physical challenge and this hike can really kick your butt i mean it's a lot of up and down you're going over multiple passes you cross over the great western divide essentially three times going over three large passes you know, it's a if you want to really challenge yourself and see what you're made of, this is a great hike to do that on. And, and similarly, from a sort of logistical perspective, I like this hike because it's about as much as you can do without a resupply. Yeah, we did it in a week and we had food for eight days. And that was about as much as we could possibly carry. We had, I think both of us had our heaviest packs probably ever. And it was, it, we needed all of it if we were going to be out there for all eight days, but it, it's totally worth it if, you, if you're into a challenge. And so the, the time of year for this is definitely a summer to late summer to early fall hike, I would say. We went starting in early July in a low snow year. Some years the passes would still have snow on them, I think, in early July. This year they, they didn't, and so that was made it more convenient for us. Um, as I talked about in episode two, the mosquitoes can be pretty bad in early July. But again, because it was a low snow year, there were mosquitoes, but it wasn't terrible, right? No, there were probably a, two or three sections in the hike where they were pretty thick, but you just walk through them quickly and it uh, gives you an incentive not to take a break. But yeah, they were fine. So I would say July through um, the end of September is probably the best time to do this hike. So for gear, I think you really just need standard mountain backpacking gear. Again, I talked about that in episode two, if you want to go back and listen to what the basic gear uh, issues are for the high Sierra. Uh, we've already mentioned that we ran into a couple of bears. You definitely need to have a bear can, right? Yeah, although when you're on the high Sierra trail and there was one more ranger station that there were places that had bear boxes that you could use, but it makes sense to bring a bear can for sure, because you want to be able to camp wherever. Yeah, that's a good point. For the first half of this trail, you're on the High Sierra Trail. And as a result, there are bear boxes, larger boxes that you can store your food in that are sort of permanently affixed in these certain campsite areas. Um, but it does give you more flexibility on where you camp if you don't need to camp in those areas. Um, but one way to do it that could work, and I think I mentioned this in episode two as well, is to bring a smaller bear can and then rely on the bear boxes maybe for the first few days. And then you could get away with a smaller can for on this hike. Once you leave the High Sierra Trail, there aren't bear boxes anymore. And you do need to have a place to store your food. Mm -hmm. Okay. And for navigation, Tom Harrison Maps has the Mount Whitney High Country map. And the entire route is on that one map. So that's really the map you need. And it'll serve you well on this hike. So we've mentioned the giant forest. If you want something else to do before you start your hike, certainly visit the giant forest. And for accommodations the night before and possibly the night after, depending on where you're coming from, I would 
recommend Lodgepole Campground, which is a fair, is fairly close to uh, the trailhead in Crescent Meadow and has the most amenities of, of any place in Sequoia National Park. So that's a pretty good option. But this year, because of the um, pandemic, when we went, the the campgrounds in the park didn't open actually until I think a day or two after we started our hike. So we didn't have that available the night before. And we found what I thought was kind of an interesting solution. So there's a service online that's called Hip Camp. They're not paying me for this. So I'm giving them a free plug here because I've used their service and I think it's a good service. Uh, they're basically an Airbnb for private camping. So if you think of Airbnb as a place where individuals who have a room in their house or a house or a cottage to, to rent can do so, this is the same kind of service, but for private camping. And so what Justin and I ended up doing the night before this trip is going and staying on an animal sanctuary ranch. It was actually a horse sanctuary near Dunlap, California, which is the last community before you head uphill into the park. It's a very small rural community. Close to Dunlap is Downer Ranch Animal Sanctuary, and it's 72 acres on a former cattle ranch. And there were plenty of places to camp. We, I definitely think all-wheel drive helps because the roads were all dirt roads and within the ranch and some of them pretty steep. Uh, and it's in the Sierra foothills where you kind of have oak and uh, hills and grass, and it's kind of an oak savanna look very similar actually to where we live here in the East Bay of the San Francisco Bay area, but up a little bit higher. I think it was around 3000 feet in elevation. We met Matt Downer who owns the ranch when we came in really nice guy told us where to set up. I guess I'll ask you two things. One is what did you think of the fact that there was a forest fire <laughs> as we approached? And I think the way this worked out is we actually made the last turnoff to get to the ranch. And if we had tried to go into the park, even if we had had a reservation, we wouldn't have been able to, right? Yeah, it was right in front of us. It was, I think on the news report, it said like the forest fire was at Dunlap, which was the town we were staying in. So uh, for a split second there, I wasn't sure if the hike was even going to happen and all those thoughts come through. And then you realize, well, I guess we're here. I guess we're going to figure it out. And luckily we could turn off to the road we needed. And we ended up, like you said, camping at the horse sanctuary. And so what did you think of waking up in the morning and have a, having a horse walk up to you who was very interested in your oatmeal? Well, I guess I shouldn't say I'm surprised since I was eating a bowl of oats in front of a pack of horses or a team of horses, rather. I guess it would be a herd of horses. A herd of horses. Yeah. But they're they're pretty funny. They're uh, They're very friendly and they just wanted the food, but they hung out and didn't seem to mind the company. Yeah, I thought it added a really neat kind of element to camping. We were camping out in just kind of a random place that we picked near one of the dirt roads with a nice overlook of the valley. And we had this herd of horses kind of hanging out near us. And in the morning when we got our food out, they were quite interested. Um, but they were they were neat to have around and definitely added to, to the ambiance. So if you're you know, looking for somewhere to stay and campgrounds are full, check out Hip Camp. It might give you additional options. So for permits for this hike... Um, as I said, both national parks are administered together and you go to the Secchi website and you can get a permit in March. I think it's the beginning of March for throughout the summer. So if you go in early March, you can reserve a permit for any time uh, during the summer hiking season. We mentioned that we did this hike in seven days, but I would say this is realistically maybe a seven to nine day hike for depending on who you are. 
Yeah, we we could have done an extra day easily, and maybe even two if, like you said, we were going at a slower pace. But I think we kind of wanted to push ourselves, and we had uh, some ambitious goals for where we wanted to camp each night, and so it ended up working out uh, the way we did it. But I could definitely see it taking nine or ten days easily. It was, I think, according to the Tom Harrison map, it was about eighty-two miles. But if you looked at the trail signs along the way, it probably added up to more like 90 miles. I don't really know what the actual mileage is. I think in the mileage that I'm going to give out today on this podcast, it's estimated closer to the numbers from the Tom Harrison map because those are the numbers that were most accessible to me. Um, So it's somewhere between 80 and 90 miles. One other thing I was going to mention is that no car shuttles are needed for this hike because, as we mentioned, it's a loop which if you listen to episode two, you know, is an advantage over episode two's uh, description of the High Sierra Trail because the High Sierra Trail is an end-to-end that crosses the entire mountain range and drops you off at the opposite side of the mountain range, which is difficult to arrange logistically for a car shuttle. So one advantage of doing this route, the High Sierra Canyons Loop, instead of the High Sierra Trail, is that you end up back where you started at the end of the trip. And so logistically it's much easier. You just park your car and it's there when you get back. Let's talk about a basic itinerary and we'll go through the hike and and talk about each day as it was for us. And I think we can help folks in thinking about planning this trip by mentioning other possible campsites as that are available along the way. So as I said, we, you follow the High Sierra Trail for roughly, by my count, it's roughly 43 miles, which is about 69 kilometers. As I mentioned in episode two, that trail was built in 1928. They started building it and it was completed in 1932. And that was after Sequoia uh, National Park had expanded across the entire Sierra and to include Mount Whitney. So you start at Crescent Meadow, which is among the, the big trees among the Sequoias. What did you think of Crescent Meadow in that area where we started the hike? It looked like a really pleasant place to go for a nice like walk or day hike in the area and check out the trees, but we didn't spend too much time there. I think you probably leave the the bowl of the meadow within the first half mile, but it was a it's a nice area. And we were I think part of the reason we didn't dawdle too much is that we were gonna shoot for Lake Hamilton on the first day, which is a pretty long day. We had to drive about another hour, hour and a half from the Downer Ranch where we stayed the night before. And we knew it was going to be a lot of up and down at at least the second half of that uh, day. And so we wanted to make sure we had time to get to to Hamilton Lake, which is about 15 miles in. Crescent Meadow is at about 6,680 feet or 2,036 meters. So that's your elevation you're starting at. And as I said, our itinerary took us 15 miles or about 24 kilometers for the day. So one of the things that I think I really enjoyed about this trip, Justin, is I had hiked the High Sierra Trail before. I had hiked Dead Man Canyon, which is on this trip as well. There was a part of the trip I hadn't done. But because I had hiked a good chunk of this trip, I really enjoyed watching your reaction to what we were seeing And the first time I saw that, well, I guess there was some, you did have some reaction to the big trees as we drove into the parking lot, which are, of course, impressive. But my first um, real excitement about seeing your reaction was about like half mile in, you turn a corner and you have a view of the Great Western Divide. And what was that like for you? So before the trip started, when we were driving up, 
I wasn't exact, or I, I was very nervous to put it mildly. I, a whole week alone in the mountains seemed pretty intimidating and having to hike 90 miles on difficult terrain. It's just something that like I had to mentally get comfortable with. And I had that feeling until I saw those mountains, until I realized how amazing the terrain is. And that's just an unbelievable view. I'm never going to forget. What does it look like? What do you see when you turn that corner? It's like five of the biggest peaks in the world creating an impassable wall. Okay, wait a minute now. We're in the Sierra here. They're not the biggest peaks in the world. Biggest peaks in my world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so they're, yeah, they get up to 13,000 plus feet high. Um, I don't know. Let me see. What is that in meters? Probably about 4,000 meters or so. So they're pretty high, but they're not you know, they're not, there are plenty of bigger peaks in the world, but certainly when you turn that corner, you're, you're on what feels like kind of a forest trail. And then it turns into being on the edge of a Canyon, um, which is the Canyon, the first Canyon on the trip, which is really this Canyon that you're up on the side of the whole first day, which has the Kauai river flowing through it down in the middle. And so I don't know if it has a name, but we'll call it the Canyon of the Kauai river or Kauai Canyon. And so you're along this, this Canyon and that's a nice thing to see. But when you turn the corner, you see this essentially massive granite wall with these huge peaks, right? Yeah, it unbelievable view. And I think I think there was actually a name. I think it was called like Eagle View or something. When yes. That corner. But it was just jaw-dropping. And I think partly why it's so jaw-dropping, especially for someone who's hiking this trail, is you know you're that's where you're going. Yeah, it... it, it is in the back of your mind that, wow, look at those amazing mountains so far away. I got to go over those eventually. And eventually we did, I think, three times. So Yeah, yeah. Okay, and so the first day, there are several other possible campsites besides Hamilton Lake. So let me just mention along the way, the first one that we came across is Merton Creek, right? Yeah. And what, what is that area like? Uh, I think it's five or six miles in and it's it's a nice creek that's kind of uh the trail crosses it in a place where it's kind of on a granite shelf and there's a few campsites that are not on the trail but they're i don't know 20 yards uh uphill and you turn a corner and there's a a flat spot where there's enough room for a good amount of tents yeah Uh, i didn't actually we didn't see the campsite though yeah, I have camped there before on another trip, and you're, the way you described it is about right. There's a few campsites that are just above. They're, like you said, on a shelf kind of above the trail. It's not the world's best campsite area. It is a little bit, they're a little bit inconvenient. Sometimes it's hard to get up to the sites. There is this creek that always runs year-round, so, or at least throughout the hiking season, so you've got a water source. I think the reason this uh, area as a campsite is because there's a good water source, a reliable water source, and there's enough room for some campsites. And it's about halfway to Bear Paw Meadow. And so if you were to come up the same day, for example, and drive up seven in the morning and get there at noon and eat lunch and then get on the trail, this is a good place to stop. Yeah, it's a good half day of hiking. Exactly. And there's bear boxes there. So that's a nice thing to have. So that's at five miles in roughly about eight kilometers. But um, a little further along, there are two other campsites before you get to Bear Meadow that have bear boxes as well. They're both along parts of Buck Creek. And about eight miles in or 13 kilometers in, there's a campsite in the forest. Do you remember that? The campsite that was along one of the creeks or after that? 
Well, there was just this campsite kind of in the woods. It was kind of in a forested area. And I know you were far ahead of me at this point, I remember. And I ran into a guy and asked him if he had seen a teenager hiking ahead of me. And he said, oh, yeah, he was moving fast. Oh, yes, <laughs> yes. I do remember that campsite. Yeah, there were a couple guys there who I think decided to uh, make it a easy first day and were setting up camp at like 2 or 3 in the afternoon. That's right. And then at about nine miles in is Buck Creek itself, which has a camp, couple of campsites, one bear box. And it's kind of an open campsite, but it seems like a nice campsite if it's available, not a bad one to take. I said that's about nine miles in, which is about 14 and a half kilometers. And then you get to Bear Paw Meadow, about another mile or a mile and a half up the trail. So 10 miles or a little more than that. And that's about 16 kilometers from the trailhead. And we didn't stay at Bear Paw Meadow uh, on the way in, but we did stay there on the way out. And I should clarify that there's two areas of Bear Paw Meadow. First, there is a, a high Sierra camp there with tent cabins and sort of an organized backcountry camp, which wasn't open this season because of the coronavirus pandemic, but it typically is open and people have to reserve a spot there. But there's also a backpacker camp that's kind of down away from that in the trees. And we did stay there on the way back out. So maybe this is a good time to mention what is the Bear Paw Meadow campsite for backpackers like? It's a uh, it's not the most glamorous campsite. <laughs> it's like uh, maybe two hundred feet down from the other campsite. What is it? Down from the main trailhead. Yeah, down from the main trailhead, and it's a sort of flat spot with room for I don't know eight to ten tents and. A water source and some pretty disgusting uh, outhouses, um, but it it'll make do, and it's a it's a good spot to stop if you want to set up for going over or going to Hamilton Lake or Tamarack Lake or going over even Koya Gap the next day. Yeah, I agree. It's situated in the right place along the trail, as far as like you said, for going over the Koya Gap the next day, uh, or even day hikes to Hamilton, but. It's not a great campsite. I mean, it's kind of in the woods. It's kind of dark and dusty. There's these couple of pit toilets that are awful that we didn't even use. There is a water source. There's kind of, I think it's well water, essentially. They've got a little piped water source. Um, and there's quite a few people camp there all the time, Sue. So so it's there's really nothing to see and too many people. But if you need a place in a pinch, it works fine. And for us on the way out, it was actually a really nice place to stay. And I, I actually enjoyed it because at that point we were kind of winding down our trip and hadn't seen anyone in a while. And so it was a nice place to touch base with some some other hikers. So past Bear Paw Meadow, you've got a few more miles to get to uh, Hamilton Lake. And I should mention the view from the other camp, from the High Sierra Camp, is actually quite nice of the Great Western Divide. Yeah, it's you're looking at it off your back porch. It's right in front of you. That big wall of granite that we talked about a, a little while ago, you're basically up against it at that point. Okay, and then so from Bear Paw Meadow, it's another four to five miles to get to Hamilton Lake. There's some downhill to cross a gorge. Do you remember this gorge? It was just a deep, crazy gorge. Do you, do you have a clear picture of that one? Yeah, it was like 100 or 200 feet just of carved like straight down like cliff on both sides and just this rushing river at the bottom and so there's a bridge crossing over the uh, the gorge so you don't have to worry about how you're going to get across it yeah although the the slightly funny part was when you look down you could see like the broken uh, old bridge that didn't survive a winter i'm guessing and 
that was a nice look at how uh, nature decided to get rid of access to the other side of that gorge. Yeah, that's a good point. When you <laughs> you think, oh, we've built this bridge here, it makes it easy to cross. But at least one time in the past, uh, that gave way to, like you said, probably a big winter and the bridge had been taken out and had to be rebuilt. And they didn't. They never fished out the old bridge. It's just kind of hanging down below. All right. And then you go uphill for quite a while after that, which at the end of a tough day, carrying all of your food for eight days, uh, how'd that go for you? That was the <laughs> longest, like, thousand feet of elevation I think I've ever hiked. It was just one step in front of the other, zigzagging up this, like, rock face with uh, chaparral and bushes. And, like, you're above treeline pretty much. Not quite. No, I don't think you're above treeline, but they're like sparse. sparse. Yeah. Sparse trees, yeah. And you're just, the sun was hot at that point, and we were we were both done, but... We had two more miles, so we we figured it out, and we we did it. There's a nice waterfall you cross over on foot. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. The waterfall, uh, it's the stream that runs, or I guess the creek that runs out of uh, Hamilton Lakes. Um, you you end up crossing it like right above where there's a there's a pretty big waterfall. That's a that's a cool spot too. And then you get to Hamilton Lake. Um, there are, there are, it's called the Hamilton lakes because there are a few of them, but there, there's an upper and there's a lower, but the one where everyone camps pretty much is the, the middle one, which we'll call Hamilton Lake. So you get to Hamilton Lake and, and you talked earlier about how that was impressive to you. What was so impressive about it? It's this Alpine Lake that is in this bowl between like three or four just massive peaks and it doesn't even it doesn't even feel real the view from that spot just looking up at these towering granite cap it's it's hard to describe but just at the end of a long day it was just a spectacular view yeah and it's got a it's basically in a glacial cirque right like it's three sides it's surrounded by huge granite uh and then open to the to the downhill side and the camping there is pretty good. There's lots of options, and we camped on some loose granite that was basically right in front of the lakeshore. Yeah, it, I was very surprised that we got such a good campsite. It it was incredible to be able to, like, when you're laying down in bed for the night and you look over and there's the lake just right next to you and the huge peaks and the, the stars. It was just it was a really, really cool spot. Okay, so day two. We get our stuff together in the morning, we head out, and our goal for the day is pretty ambitious. It's to get over the Kauai Gap, go down the Big Arroyo, and then get up onto the Chagupa Plateau to Moraine Lake. So after going 15 miles in the first day through some pretty tough terrain, we decide that on day two we're going to do, it's about 13 miles, but some really tough terrain, which is, so 13 miles is about 21 kilometers. And it starts with an ascent of the Kauai Gap. And so what was what was that like? I think it was maybe like 2,500 feet to get from the lake to the top of the gap over the course of like three miles or so, well, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. I can't, I don't recall the numbers exactly, but it's, it's pretty difficult hiking. And luckily for us, we, we did it in the morning. And so we had a little bit uh, more shade than if you were to do it later in the day and it was a little cooler. So that, that definitely helped, but that's not to say that it was easy at all. It was brutal hiking all morning and 
totally, totally great views and some really cool spots, but it was, it was difficult. And then we went through the tunnel. Do you remember the tunnel on the, on the trail? Yeah, that was, there's a big gorge that I think, uh, there was a bridge that crossed it. And I, I think you actually talked about that on the first episode, but there was a bridge that crossed it, but it only survived for a few years before it got knocked out in a big snow year. And so they decided to just uh, go through the mountain in this one section and create a tunnel. But even even though there was a tunnel, that, that section was a little hairy. <laughs> just a small path with a huge drop on, on your side. And you just got to make sure you're stepping on the sturdy ground. And then we get up to Precipice Lake, which is a, a beautiful lake on the way before you get to Kauai Gap. And we stopped there and saw some marmots for the first time on the trip, I think. And at Precipice Lake also was the first time we said hello to a fellow hiker, uh, Shashin, lives in San Jose, California, but is originally from Sichuan province in China, and turned out to be someone we talked to a few times along the trip and turned out to be a really nice guy and ultimately someone who we got in touch with after the trip and exchanged some photos. And that was kind of nice. Yeah, it was nice to meet people. It's always nice to meet people on the trail because the people who are willing to do those kinds of trails tend to be kind of cool people. (laughs) (laughs) Not to toot my own horn, but, you know, there's some cool people out there. I'm sure you're not biased. (laughs) No, not at all. (laughs) Okay, and so after Precipice Lake, we get to, we finally made it to Kauai Gap, and that's our first pass over the uh, Great Western Divide. And Kauai Gap is at 10,700 feet which is about 3,260 meters. And we stopped for lunch. You have a view of the Big Arroyo and the Nine Lakes Basin. What was that like? That is one of the greatest views of the whole hike. Just you can see all the way down this huge canyon, which is Big Arroyo to almost the the, the oh, crest. Okay. Oh, almost to, oh, going which direction? Wait, looking east down the... Down the canyon. You can see almost to Kern Canyon, I guess, where it connects yeah. right at the bottom. And then there's, oh, almost to the eastern crest. Yeah, yeah. 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 You can almost see, I mean, you can see the tops of uh, some of the mountains out there, but it's just this huge view. And then closer to you, down kind of uh, to your left, I guess, if you're going over the same way we did, there's this big lake, part of the Nine Lakes Basin, beautiful, like, blue water that's probably you could drink from but you know we I, I would filter it but it's just super c- crystal clear and the Kauai uh, mountain range is right in front of you and you can see I think it was Black Kauai and Queen Kauai the best and those are some really striking mountains yeah I thought that Kauai range is just beautiful it's just a really neat place and we saw it like you said earlier we saw it from a few different angles on this trip which was really nice yeah, and that's the first time you get to see those mountains. So it, it that was really just jaw-dropping. Okay, so that was pretty awe-inspiring. And then uh, we had lunch there, but we did not have lunch alone, did we? No, no. We actually made a friend who I'm sure makes a new friend every day. But there was a marmot up there who was trying to get our food and ended up hanging out with us for lunch. And uh, we we nicknamed the marmot Stewie, right? yeah. So one of one of the big peaks that is uh, surrounds Lake Hamilton, and when you're up at the Kauai Gap, it's one of the peaks that creates the gap. Is uh, it's called George Stewart Mountain, I think, or George Stewart Peak. I'm not sure, but George Stewart was the 
person who actually the founder of Sequoia National Park and if you listen to episode two he was the one who uh, preserved the Sequoia Grove from the Utopian Society and uh, so they named that mountain after him and uh, since Stewie was hanging out there we decided he should be uh, named after the man who preserved that area. Yeah so that was kind of fun and I guess this is a, it's probably worth saying, don't feed the wildlife. Yeah, uh, always, you don't want to feed them because then they'll get used to it. And then they're, uh, then they're accustomed to humans in a way that's unnatural. Yeah, you don't want them to be accustomed to people in a way where they might get into conflict with people trying to steal food or bite somebody and, um, you know, create a situation that ends somebody's trip. And you also don't want them to rely on human food and not, you know, continue to develop their own ability to get their own food. And and this this particular marmot clearly knew that people came through this pass every day and probably spends his whole summer up there uh, begging for food. I've seen that in other places in the Sierra. It's just one of those things that happens from heavy use by people. So, but something to be aware of. Yeah, it. You want to keep nature and wildlife natural and wild. You don't. You don't want them to base their survival off of human encounters. And so we go down the Big Arroyo, which, as you mentioned, is this really beautiful, wide open canyon. And then we get to a trail junction. And at that junction, it's the junction with the trail that goes all the way down the Big Arroyo and with the High Sierra Trail going uphill to uh, the Chagupa Plateau. And in our itinerary, we plan to make it all the way up that um, hill uh, the same day that we went over Kauai Gap. And in my memory of this trip from a long time ago, that didn't seem like much of a hill, but that turned out to be quite a climb. Before you go over the Chagupa Plateau, however, you can make a decision about whether to call it a day there at that junction where there is a bear box area and campsite. So uh, that's an option. If you get there late afternoon, that might be a good choice because you have water and you avoid a large uphill that's going to be hitting you at the end of a long day of hiking already. It's not a huge number of miles to get there from Hamilton Lake, maybe only, I don't know, six or seven miles at most, but it's, you know, it's been a hard day already because you've gone up over the pass through the gap. So that is certainly an option. And a lot of the people we met on the trail, uh, not, we didn't meet that many people, but the few people we met on the trail hiking this route the same day that we passed were planning to stop there and did stop there. We, however, were not that smart and decided to keep going to Moraine Lake. And so we went uphill and this you got to climb again up to over 10,000 feet so you're basically almost going as high as the Kauai Gap to get up onto this large plateau called the Chagupa Plateau and to Moraine Lake uh, but at the end of the day I thought it was worth it because Moraine Lake was a really nice spot yeah just a beautiful lake that's right on the edge of the plateau so although you can't actually see the drop off because you're right on the edge, you can see some of the mountains that are uh, across Big Arroyo. And and they actually are the same mountains that you see in the beginning of the hike when you're looking at the Great Western Divide. But now you're on the other side of them looking back on their backside. And that's a beautiful view and a great lake and definitely worth stopping at. Yeah. And there's even one point, I think, along the trail down to Moraine Lake where you the trail winds to the edge of the plateau and you can see out uh, into the valley, into the the bottom part of Big Arroyo. And then when you get to Moraine Lake, which seemed like it took forever, and you got so far ahead of me that I almost got uh, trapped by a giant rattlesnake that I don't know what it was doing it up over 9,000 feet, but there was a rattlesnake that was right in the middle of the trail that you hadn't seen that got in my way. And then we made it to Moraine Lake and there's a bear box there. 
it's a nice lake to go in and get cleaned up. Uh, not that cold. The water was nice. And some really nice campsites. Yeah, yeah, definitely worth stopping. It's actually not on the High Sierra Trail officially, um, but there's a small detour and it's definitely worth taking. Yeah, that's a good point. The trail kind of splits and then comes back together after a few miles. And if you take the right-hand split, that's not the official part of the High Sierra Trail. That's how you get to Moraine Lake. Um, but definitely worth doing. Nice place to stop. Nice campsites. I, I really enjoyed uh, our time there. So then the next day we decide what we had planned to do was really have that sort of half day. And so that was this was sort of a little break within the trip. Uh, and our, our hike was from Rain Lake and mostly downhill uh, down to the Kern Valley and Kern Hot Springs. It was about a seven mile hike. Moraine Lake's at about 9,300 feet or 2,835 meters. You descend over a few miles down to 6,730 feet or 2,050 meters. So you there's a significant drop of several thousand feet to get down to Kern Valley. After the gradual part of that drop, there's a switchback part where we ran into another rattlesnake. I think you ran into this one. Almost literally. <laughs> Actually, two more, right? Yeah, yeah. There were two uh, within a couple miles of each other. But the first one got out of the way uh, off the trail, and that wasn't a big deal. Although I'm not a huge snake fan, so that was not my favorite part of the day. But the second one was right behind a rock on the trail that I got probably within a couple feet of. And we both kind of jumped back and scurried away at the same time. But yeah, there are two rattlesnakes just in that one section. And then I guess the thing I wanted to to ask you about is what did you think of when we started down the switchbacks, the view of Kern Valley? There, There's, I think, this one spot where there's kind of this rock outcropping. And I actually passed it when we were hiking. And my dad made me walk uphill like 20 <laughs> steps to come back and take a picture. But it is just an amazing view. You can totally see the U-shape of the of the valley. And the lush forest that goes down the bottom and the, the steep walls are just incredible. And it, it's a huge valley. It, it basically, I think it splits the Great Western Divide and the, the Eastern Crest. And so it's the low point between two massive ranges of mountains. And so there's a lot of water and a lot of wildlife and just a, just a great view. Yeah, that, that's, that's exactly right. Um, that really sums it up. I guess one thing is I would just add is it's such a contrast to Big Arroyo, right? Big Arroyo is a much wider valley, still kind of U, still U-shaped, but a much wider valley and much less sparsely forested. And then you get to Kern Valley, and like Justin said, it's kind of it's really lush looking. And when you get down to the and it's more narrow, it's a lot narrower than the Big Arroyo, but really impressive. And the trail kind of hits it at the midpoint. There's a lot heading to your south, and we are going to head north when we get to the bottom. And we get to the bottom, and and it's it is lush. I mean, you're in some pretty deep forest, uh, but pretty quickly you come out of that forest. You cross a bridge over the river, and then you get to Kern Hot Spring. And we got there, I think it was about one thirty in the afternoon. After about seven miles, we kind of taken our time in the morning and made this an easy day, as I mentioned. Um, but I had long been planning this because I'd been to Kern Hot Springs before when I hiked the High Sierra Trail, but wanted to spend more time there and really get to enjoy it and. We did that. Yeah, we, we spent the whole afternoon uh, enjoying the luxury of having a spa out in the middle of nowhere. It was, it's 
like 30 something miles from any trailhead and it's just an amazing hot bath that I I mean other than the fact that my dad told me I didn't even know could exist out there but I think it's a natural hot spring but then they carved like a bathtub kind of shape out of a granite rock so it's like sitting in a bath and it's right next to the rushing Kern River and so you can go from a hot bath to a like an ice bath and back and forth. And it was so refreshing after three tough days of hiking. Yeah, I think it's actually cement. They probably trucked in whatever you need to do to mix with the regular rock there to make the tub. So I think the tub was built out of cement and it's got a little wooden fence around three sides. So you have some privacy while you're in the tub. And it has wooden dowels in the uphill and downhill side. So you can uh, fill the tub to the height you want by putting by closing off one end or opening one end. Uh, but as Justin mentioned, it's just a perfect place to really enjoy a refreshing hot soak. And then you can get out of the hot spring, which is, I don't know the exact temperature, but it's pretty darn hot. Uh, but but not so hot that you can't be in it, but you do definitely want to get out of it after a little while as because it is so hot. And then you just go into, there's some swirling pools in the river that are protected from the current. And we just went back and forth for most of the afternoon. <laughs> Yeah, there I couldn't get enough of it. Every time I would get into the hot bath, I was looking forward to jumping in the river and then I'd get in the river and I was looking forward to going back into the bath and we did that for at least a few hours. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it it felt like it felt like a few hours at least. Yeah, I definitely had enough by the end and felt like I had got what I came for. Yeah, my skin was humming at the end. <laughs> I just remember like buzzing. So that hike as I mentioned that day was only about 7 miles or about 11 kilometers. And we knew that the other folks like um, Shashen and the other people we met along the hike would catch up with us probably. And they did, but they got there, you know, in the evening where they had less time to enjoy the tub, though they, they all got their chance to take a soak as well. There are good campsites at Kern Hot Springs. There's a pit toilet. There's also bear boxes. So all of, you know, the, <laughs> the best amenities you could hope for being 35 miles from a trailhead. So the next day we left Kern Hot Spring. And this is day four now, and we ended up going about 12 and a half miles or about 20 kilometers. Half, so it's kind of a gradual uphill throughout Kern Canyon. So you go from maybe 67 or 6,800 feet to maybe 8,000 feet. Yeah, you get to Junction Meadow, and it's at 8,080 feet or 2,463 meters. And so you're, you're over about a seven or eight mile stretch. You're kind of gradually gaining altitude and elevation, but it's pretty doable. And we ended up having lunch at Junction Meadow. This is the last spot that we were sharing the High Sierra Trail. Yeah. So uh, Junction Meadow is like uh, my dad said, at the end of Kern Canyon. And it is where if you go right, or I guess it's uh, straight from there, but eventually you're going to go east. I think it is actually a right because you, you can go straight to a different set of lakes. There's actually three ways you can go from there. Oh, okay. Well, then if you go right or east from there, then you stay on the High Sierra Trail and uh, you meet up with the John Muir Trail and the PCT and you go, that takes you to, the, to Mount Whitney. And so if you're doing the High Sierra Trail conventionally, that's where you'd go. But to loop it, this is where you make a left. And uh, like my dad said, this is our last time seeing people for almost two and a half days. And we ended up having lunch with uh, Shashen and the couple hikers he was hiking with. And so we got to say our goodbyes and then we headed off and we were on our own. 
Yeah. And I would say that Junction Meadow also has a bear box and good campsites. It was a great place to have lunch. It might be a little buggy in the evening. I got a sense because there's quite a bit of kind of growth and like lower vegetation. Yeah. Kern Canyon is densely lush. And even though it wasn't quite as dense where uh, the junction was, it was still a lot of green and probably there. I remember some bugs even in early afternoon or not early, like noon. And so in the evening, I'm sure there is, it was probably a good amount worse. So we started heading uphill and this was some pretty hard work. First, we had to cross a river without a bridge. Yeah. Yeah. That was uh, the first time that I kind of just gave up on trying to find rocks to step on and we just crossed it. Yeah. It actually felt good to get our feet really wet and cold because, you know, a lot of hot hiking uphill in the first half of the, the day and it actually cooled our feet down and I was, I was pretty happy to actually walk through the river. Uh, but then there was a ton of uphill in early afternoon sun, which was pretty brutal. Yeah. And it was, it was some brutal uphill, just tough elevation gain. But what made it even worse was that the trail is not as well used as the High Sierra Trail at all. And so there was some bushwhacking, some trying to find the trail, just some rocks that sort of look like a trail that you just kind of got to find your way through. And it was tough. It was it was new terrain, too. It kind of shifted into like this like mountain desert feel. And so it was a less trees, more sun. Tough. It It was tough. Yeah, we took a break at Landslide Lake, which is a small lake, but a good water source. And then we had continued uphill through some sort of open granite shelves going up and up to Galatz Lake. And Galatz Lake is not really a lake, is it? No, it's actually one of the most surprising features of the hike because like it says on the map, it's called Galatz Lake. And it, it kind of looks like this marshy something. We weren't really sure because it didn't look like there was a really big lake area. But that turns out there wasn't because it was just this amazing meadow. Yeah, it was beautiful. Big, beautiful alpine meadow. Quite a bit of mosquitoes, so we kept moving. We didn't stay long, but it was a very pretty meadow. Galatz or Galatz is at 10,200 feet or about 3,110 meters. So... You know, you've gone quite a bit uphill starting at 6,800 feet and the beginning of the day at Kern Hot Springs. And we found a campsite a little bit past Galatz, which may be the only really good campsite in that area. You could have gone quite a bit more uphill and found campsites, I think, once you got out to the open closer to Colby Pass. But there was a really nice campsite on a between two big granite rocks on a little shelf overlooking a pretty creek. And that I would guess was at about 10,600 feet or 3,230 meters. And it may have been quarter to half mile past uh, Galatz Lake. We had a nice evening there. And the next day, we so this was really, this campsite was really to set us up to cross Colby Pass. Yeah, it's, I think, two or three miles away from, from the pass. And a good amount of elevation, what, 2,000 feet or something, 2,500 feet. And it starts from the first step you take that day. It basically, the la- the place we stopped was like the last place you could stop if you wanted to avoid the, the difficult, difficult uphill that was coming. 
I think it was more like 1,500 feet, but I could be wrong about where the campsite was. The campsite could have been a little lower. So it's between 1,500 and 2,000 feet to go. Uh, so yeah, you, there's a, there was a pretty severe uphill switchback area right after the campsite, which we didn't know until the next morning when we packed up and started heading uphill. Yeah, and that was one of those ones where like you take the first few steps and you're like, am I really going to be doing this all day? <laughs> where you're just walking straight up and every 50 steps you're taking a breather and looking around wondering why the hell you're out there for a second. But it, it was good hiking. So we went about 12 and a half miles that day, and it was about, so that's about 20 kilometers. Our first major obstacle was to get over Colby Pass. That was pretty challenging. Yeah. So like I said, you start with that uphill right uh, from the start of your day, but it's not straight up to Colby Pass. You get up and about uh, maybe a 500 feet from where you start of elevation gain, you get up to this big bowl. It's like this big just high Sierra, alpine bowl, like little to no trees, marmot country, um, lots of like kind of puddly lakes of like snowmelt areas and grasses mostly, uh, some wildflowers. But it was just this really incredible spot. And you could look back and see the backside of the Kauai mountain range, which is a really beautiful view. But then you also can look ahead and you see Colby Pass and... <laughs> It is not much of a pass. There are two peaks that are up there. I don't know, 100 or 200 feet higher than the pass. But the pass is, you could see switchbacks that look like they're going straight up pretty far in front of you. And trail is difficult. So, yeah, we lost the trail, didn't we? Yeah, that was our uh, actual, actually our only uh, cross country for the trip was, we didn't mean for it to be cross country, but the trail was not very well marked and so we lost it and just ended up finding kind of a place where we could boulder our way up and to get close to the pass and then within a few hundred feet of it or maybe a little further but we got pretty close and then we found the trail again but yeah that's a good point i think to think about is when you're approaching a pass like this is to really as soon as you can figure out where the pass is do so because a lot of these passes in the high sierra they don't have a lot of uh, months of the year where they're accessible because there's snow most of the year. And so the trails may not be marked and may not be very well tread. And there may be multiple trails and sometimes really no trail. And so in some of these more remote passes, you really just look for where the pass is and kind of head toward it. Yeah, that, that's definitely right. We could see the zigzags going up from a ways away. So we knew where the end goal was, but it was... Uh... We kind of had to make our own way there. And so when we got up to the pass, that was quite a, a, an achievement. It was 12,000 feet uh, or 3,658 meters high. Colby Pass is an interesting route. It's, it's, as I said, it's pretty remote. Not a lot of people going over this. And William Colby was a Sierra Club member who found this route in 1920. And it was published in the Sierra Club Bulletin in 1921. And he was looking, I don't know where he was coming from, but he was looking for a shorter route to Mount Whitney. And that's how he found this pass, which, as Justin said, isn't much of a pass. It's basically just going over the mountains. It's a little bit lower than the, the peaks around it, but not much. Um, so there was quite an ascent there. We had a, a nice celebration on top of Colby Pass at 12,000 feet up. And down on the other side of the pass, we saw our goal for lunch, which was Colby Lake. 
Beautiful, beautiful lake. And uh, let me just say, when you get to the top of any pass, but especially that one, is ecstasy. It is total euphoria because that was the hardest. Like when you're up at eleven or twelve thousand feet, you're huffing and puffing and twenty steps at a time, and you finally get to the top, and it's it's the best feeling in the world. And you get to, I mean, when you're that high up, you can see for miles and miles and miles. So that was a really cool spot. And Colby Lake ended up being a great spot to have lunch and to jump in the water and uh, cool off. Yeah, yeah. It, perfect swimming lake. It was cold, uh, but that was not a problem. We were both pretty tired and we it was very, very refreshing. And there were tons and tons of fish up there. Probably because it probably doesn't get fished very often. That's my guess. But yeah, there just aren't that many people coming through. No, but it was like you could look down in the water and see five or six fish at wherever. Like there, it was just, it was densely packed with fish. And Colby Lake, I don't even think it was a mile from the pass. And it was at 10,584 feet or 3,226 meters. So you dropped 1,500 feet almost immediately. Yeah, the, the downhill... For how difficult the uphill was, the downhill, it, it wasn't more difficult, but it was steeper. It was switchbacks just straight down past snow fields over boulders until you get down to the lake. And then so after our lunch break at Colby, which was, was great, we started winding our way down into Cloud Canyon. And I have to say, the whole reason I wanted to do this trip was Cloud Canyon because I had done these other two trips, the High Sierra Trail and a loop through Dead Man Canyon. And I saw on a map that there was a way to connect these two trips and the way to connect them was Cloud Canyon. And because it really only connected these two really remote trips, I knew instinctively or, you know, it was pretty obvious to me in looking at the maps that nobody went there, <laughs> that it had to be very rare that people went through there because it's just, there's no reason to go through there. And so I, I, it doesn't seem like a very highly trafficked area. As Justin mentioned, the, the trails were hard to get up to Colby Pass, uh, hard to find at times. And coming down uh, into Cloud Canyon, I mean, we knew that we were the only ones in this canyon. Yeah, very, very remote canyon. Definitely worth it if you're willing to to get out there and hike uh, for 50 plus miles but it, it's it's a really interesting and unique feeling to feel kind of like you have that area to yourself i should say i know that a lot of people who really love cross-country travel feel like this a lot on their trips because they find places they know there's nobody else there but i do cross-country from time to time but for the most part i do most of my hiking on trails and for Someone who hikes mostly on trails, Cloud Canyon is about as remote as it gets, particularly in the United States. So this was just a, a goal that I had had to, to come to this area, and it was certainly worth the effort. It was a beautiful canyon, and it was a nice trip down to get into the canyon. And once we were in it, we came to Big Wet Meadow. That's the name of the meadow. And there's a campsite there. So anyone who decides to ever go to Cloud Canyon, that's a good option for a place to stop. I don't know how buggy it would have been in the evening. It wasn't bad in the mid-afternoon when we got there. But we got there at about 2 o'clock, and I think both of us decided it was a little too early to stop for the day, although I think I could have been convinced. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a difficult day up until that point. But it was it was pretty early in the day. And uh, like my dad said, there it could have been buggy later because it was right next to the meadow. It was in the, it was in the forest off it a little bit, and there were buggier parts to that canyon. 
but I wasn't ready to stop yet. Although we, uh, there wasn't much after that, not yeah. much camping. Yeah, we didn't know that. There were a few campsites after Big Wet Meadow, but not many. So if you make it to Cloud Canyon um, and you want to stop and enjoy that canyon, Big, Big Wet Meadow is your best bet, I think. So we kept going and we kept going and we were looking for campsites and never really finding one. And ultimately we decided, well, there's a ranger station at Roaring River and Roaring River. So if you think about this, the way it might look on a map, it's kind of a zigzag and Cloud Canyon goes down to Roaring River. And then you turn back and zag the other way up Dead Man Canyon to kind of close the loop. And so Roaring River, I knew had a ranger station and that there was a place to camp there and there were uh, bear boxes there. So we uh, decided to keep going, and this actually paid off, if you want to call it that, in another way. Because at one point, um, Justin was walking, I don't know, 50 feet in front of me, and then all of a sudden he had turned around and was walking straight back toward me. And why did that happen, Justin? <laughs> well, I wasn't expecting I thought we were alone. Turns out we were alone from people, but there was a bear in the middle of the path. And so I was not expecting to see that, and it surprised me, and I'd I turned around and was like, oh my gosh, there's a bear. And we both scampered away because he got out of there as quick as he could too. Yeah, the bear turned tail and went the other way. And so did Justin. <laughs> we, you know, it scampered off and was not a problem. And I think he was as surprised as you were. Yeah. And I, that was one of the goals of the trip was to see a bear. So I was, <laughs> I was pretty happy afterward. Okay. And I'll preview the next day. It wasn't the only bear we saw, but, um, yeah, so that we stopped at uh, Roaring River. And this is an experience I've had many times this year. You get to a ranger station and there's nobody there. Yeah, it, there were a few campsites and then there's this uh, ranger station with uh, it looked like a bunch of cut logs and a bunch of signs and like uh, whatever you'd have to maintain the area, but nobody to maintain it. But, you know, it was nice to have it to ourselves, too. Yeah, it was nice to have it to ourselves. And there was um, a good campsite and a good fire pit and good access to the river and a bridge across the river to get there. So it almost it's this weird thing that happens when you're backpacking where it almost feels like civilization just because there's human made structures and you have the sense of like everything's safe in a way because there's a building there and a bridge and there's these campsites that are already built in a way. But um, in reality, you're still a long way from anyone. Yeah, we were, this was probably like the furthest we got from anybody because it was like uh, my dad said earlier, it's kind of between the two canyons or both canyons kind of run all the way down and meet at that point. And so it was as far north as we got and as far deep into Kings Canyon as we got and as far away from the High Sierra Trail as we got. So there was nobody around, probably for miles, although obviously I can't prove that. (laughs) <laughs> it sure seemed that way. Uh, and so the next morning, we started out up Dead Man Canyon. The first thing we that happened to us that day is we ran into another bear. This time, you were still in the lead, but we were kind of together this time, and it was a much bigger bear. Yeah, that was definitely a papa bear. <laughs> Heavy coat, uh, pretty burly, and still quick, because we saw it on the trail, and it ran away, and it was like on the other side of the the valley or the canyon within, I don't know, a few seconds. It they can they can haul. Yeah. And then so we were heading up Dead Man Canyon and we got to an area called Grave Meadow. 
And this is where you learn that Dead Man Canyon is called Dead Man Canyon for a reason. Yeah, it's not just because when people go out there, they think they're going to die out there. It's because because somebody did die out there. There's a grave, and the reason it's called Grave Meadow is somebody's buried there. And it's a wooden gravestone. Mm -hmm. I'll read what it said on the stone. It said, here reposes, I guess I shouldn't call it a stone. It was on kind of like a fence. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) And anyway, what it said, it was carved into the wood. It said, here reposes Alfred Monier, sheep herder, mountain man, 18 blank to 1887. So that's what it says on it. And apparently he was, the story goes, he was an Iberian sheep herder. And National Geographic reported that he died in 1875. It says 1887 on the, on the grave marker. So who knows? But, and there are two stories about how he died. One is that he was murdered. The other story is that he became ill and died and was with a partner. And when he was ill, the partner went for help, but he was dead by the time he got back. I have no idea if either story is true. But there is, in fact, a grave in Grave Meadow and Alfred Monier, rest in peace. And beyond Grave Meadow, which is actually a place you can camp. Uh, when I had been in Dead Man Canyon years ago, uh, I had camped close to Grave Meadow. So there are a couple of spots there that are potential campsites. Uh, but then beyond Grave Meadow, you come to another meadow, which is really one of the highlights of Dead Man Canyon, which is Ranger Meadow. Yeah, that is a, a beautiful, beautiful meadow. And it has a, a great view of, uh, I think, Big Bird Peak. Is that what it's called? Yeah, I think that's the name. Yeah, it's just this really neat looking peak that sticks out in a really unique way. Um, and it it is huge. It, it's right in front of you. And uh, the way the canyon's shaped is it kind of it kind of winds like almost like a snake where like there are different sec like parts to it. And so it looks like it's at the end of the canyon because uh, the angle you're looking at it, it's just right in front of you. And although there's more that's kind of to the to the left of that, it towers over Ranger Meadow. And it is uh, actually fairly well known, maybe, because uh, Ansel Adams is, uh, took a famous photo of it from close to where we were standing, actually. And so it, it's it's a really, really cool spot. And you can see why somebody like him would go out there to take a photo of it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And then we headed up the canyon. There's a couple of campsites in an area, kind of granite area, past Ranger Meadow. So if I were planning to camp in the middle of Dead Man Canyon, that would be a good place to go. I mean, you could make this an eight-day trip. Instead of camping at Roaring River, you could camp at Big Wet Meadow instead in the middle of Cloud Canyon and then camp in the middle of Dead Man Canyon at these sites that are a little bit past Ranger Meadow, and those would be good options to spend a night in each canyon. And then you get into the sort of upper part of Dead Man Canyon. And to me, I think Ranger Meadow is beautiful, but the upper part of Dead Man Canyon is is like nothing I've ever seen. I, I didn't even realize that mountains and terrain could look like that. It was that's that's definitely the coolest part of the hike. So me. tell people what it looked like. It's like the biggest U you've ever seen. It's a huge, the way my dad described it and pretty accurately is it it looks like the world's biggest half pipe of just like uh, smooth sloped granite that's been carved from a glacier. And it's, it's just, it's like perfectly shaped to a point where it like, I was questioning whether it was truly natural, but it is, it is. It's just amazing. Yeah, it's a perfect example of a glacially carved canyon. And like Justin said, it's a big U-shape, a half pipe, like half a subway tunnel almost. It's just, 
a perfect U-shaped canyon. And when you there's a place where you can stop on a granite shelf where I had actually camped years ago with my friend Tony Wong. Uh, we had camped on this shelf that Justin and I stopped at to have lunch. And it's really, uh, if you're going up this canyon, you'll see the shelf. There's a waterfall pouring off of this granite shelf. And it's got a nice wide open flat space. And it's just an amazing spot to take a break. And we took quite a break there. Yeah, we had lunch there. And I could have stayed there for a week. But we had to keep going. But that was just just a beautiful, beautiful spot. And I, I'll never forget the view from there. And then you head uphill to Elizabeth Pass. And Elizabeth Pass is at about 11,200 feet or 3,414 meters. This was a pass whose route was found in 1904, so actually older than Colby Pass and uh, before this was part of the park. And it was actually in a different place originally. Now, do you remember when we were going up toward Elizabeth Pass and we were looking for where the pass was and we first thought it was straight ahead of us? Yep, yep. That's where apparently it was originally. That's funny you say that. I'm not surprised because when we were hiking up it, we thought we were going there for most of the time until we realized like there's a different part to it. But I'm not I'm not surprised to hear that. Up until the 1950s, maps had that other location as where the pass was. Um, by the 1950s, though, maps had switched to, to the current location, which is more to the west. So we made it to the pass, another tough climb, but I thought because of our long break for lunch, actually not horrible. Yeah, so that day on paper looked like it was, I mean, it was a tough day, but it looked really, really brutal because we weren't getting to the pass until the ninth mile or something. And so that was something that we weren't sure how it was going to happen, but we woke up early and just started hiking. But uh, like my dad said, we had lunch maybe two or three miles before the pass. And so it gave us energy and it set us up pretty well. And we got up there in a couple hours. I'm not sure, maybe around three or so. And another amazing spot. I really thought the descent was way harder than the ascent. Yeah, the trail on the other side was just not very well uh, maintained or traveled. And it was, we lost the trail a few times. We kind of had to just make our way down grassy boulder field but it was yeah yeah it it was rough hiking and we were we were pretty beat at that point too yeah the the descent from elizabeth on the western side is is really tough and i imagine the ascent if you went the opposite direction would be even harder um so it was uh, not a great trail on the way down but still beautiful and beautiful views of the back on the front side of the great western divide because elizabeth pass is your last traverse of the divide where you're now coming back over to the western side and then we had to do this uphill to get it was kind of a hump hike of like four miles maybe to get over to gosh you know what i'm saying four miles i think it was only two miles yeah i think i think it's two but we were just so tired at the end of the day (laughs) it could have been 10 i don't know (laughs) (laughs) and that got us back to bear paw meadow and kind of closed the the loop uh that we had started and we spent that night at bear paw meadow and Bear Paw's at 7,820 feet, so you've gone down more than 3,000 feet from the pass. And I think then gone back up some more and then back down again. So it's it's a tough end to the day. There's one point where there's an exposed switchback area that was just brutal. So, yeah, it's, it's a tough descent. Uh, but at the end of the day, we closed the loop, spent a night at Bear Paw Meadow. And then the last day went from Bear Paw Meadow back out to Crescent Meadow on day seven, which was about a 10-mile hike. 
and uh, about 16 kilometers total. And I don't remember if I said how far day six was, but day six going up Dead Man Canyon over Elizabeth Pass and down to Bear Paw Meadow was about 13 and a half miles or 22 kilometers. And so, yeah, you, the last day out was the area we'd already talked about from Bear Paw to Crescent Meadow with the trailhead. And that was our seven-day itinerary of the High Sierra Canyons Loop. And as we mentioned, could certainly easily be done in eight days by spending a night in both canyons at the, the second half of the trip rather than in between them at Roaring River. Uh, and if you didn't have long days on the first day and second day, uh, you could have stretched those out somehow. You know, we did those that first 30 miles or so in two days, and you could probably stretch that into three like a lot of the people we met on the trail did and, and even that out a little bit too, but we wanted to have that extra time at the hot spring. So we pushed it a little the first couple of days. So there are ways to do it differently, but overall about seven to nine days. And so now thinking back after we've talked about this uh, hike, you know, what, what stands out to you the most? Like what's, what do you take away from this? As far as uh, kind of the, the feeling I got when we were done is I was just, I was very, very appreciative of the people who fought to preserve that area because I could, if we were in Europe, there'd be hotels and ski resorts and like restaurants and just tons of people. And the fact that we we were willing to let nature stay natural, I'm I'm very thankful for. So yeah, I guess that was my main takeaway is that I just, and and uh, I should say that I would like to help and to try and preserve more land and to try and keep those areas the way they are. So Awesome. I hope you do that. What about your memories of it? Is there a particular best memory that you think about? When you think about this trip, like what comes to mind? The Dead Man Canyon view. Absolutely. Yeah. It's the one where I, I can close my eyes and see it. It is just incredible. If if you ever get the chance, please go see it. You, you'll thank me later. It is just, just amazing. And the view from the top of that waterfall is once in a lifetime experience. And so this wasn't a perfect uh, event either. We had a couple of issues come up on the trip. We thought we had uh, two full-size uh, fuel canisters, but we had a little uh, problem with one of them, didn't we? Yeah. So... Uh, we, I shouldn't say we, so I, I packed the fuel can on the outside of my pack, uh, where I put like my jacket and a few other things. And I, I didn't even think about it cause it was the backup one and it just, it was there for later. And it, it never occurred to me that putting it on the bottom could uh, end up damaging it, which it did pretty severely just over the trip, I, I'm sure I just placed my bag down on some granite a few times too roughly, and there were just dents all over it and compromised the ability to use it. And so that was not great. Yeah, we just decided from a safety standpoint, it was not worth it to try to use it with these huge dents in it because it could have been compromised and it w could have exploded and, and caused serious injury. So we, or at least that was my concern. I don't know if that's the, a legitimate concern, but I wasn't going to risk it. So we decided not to use it, and we ended up finishing the trip. I think we had one cold breakfast to conserve fuel, which works fine, by the way. If you want to put cold water and oatmeal, it'll hydrate, and you're, you'll be fine. But we had one. So that was two large-size Snow Peak fuel cans, and literally, we got through the entire trip with one can. 
Yeah, I I don't know how that was possible because on the on the last day we or at Roaring River rather the second to last morning we had that cold breakfast that my dad was talking about, but the night after we weren't sure if we were gonna have enough fuel for dinner and we barely had it and it ended up being fine and then the next morning we were like all right let's just use whatever we have and eat up water and see if we can get some warm oatmeal and we got warm oatmeal so it and it ended up it ended up being the perfect amount of fuel and you also didn't have perfect situation with your feet by the end of this trip no uh i think it was either day five i think it was day five where i started to feel hot spots on my outer ankle and on one of my toes and uh by the end of the trip there were some pretty significant blisters there so we taped you up with some luco tape and some kinesio tape on your toe and i think that helped keep them from getting too bad Uh, i think the lesson i drew from that was you were wearing they were athletic socks but they were more like nike sports socks and I, in my view, a little thick, and that if you do something a little thinner and a little bit more of a running sock, which it works well with a lightweight hiking shoe. And even and on your trip, I know it wasn't as long, but on your trip to Emigrant Wilderness, you did that. You you wore a, the trip you had later in the summer, you wore some Balega running socks and that worked out, it seemed better. Yeah, I it, like my dad said, it, it was 40 miles compared to 80 plus. And so it wasn't nearly as long of a trip, but I didn't, I didn't have any problems with the running socks. So I'd definitely recommend bringing thin socks that fit your feet well, because you're going to hate yourself if you have blisters and you got to hike long days. All right, Justin, is there anything we have not covered about this hike that I've forgotten you want to talk about? Um, I, I don't think so. I, it was, it was beautiful and I highly recommend it for anybody who really wants a difficult but uh, incredibly rewarding challenge. So, Justin, while I have you, though, I've got a few more questions. Are you ready? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So what is your favorite backpacking meal? So this is, I don't know if it's my favorite meal I've ever had, but it's something I look forward to whenever I go backpacking. And this is actually fairly new to me, but peanut butter and tortilla for lunch <laughs> is just, it is calorie dense, just delicious. I'm into tortillas. Uh, I could eat them all day, just plain, but it is a great meal. It never disappoints. Okay. So we typically use the Justin's brand, no relation, uh, the Justin's brand packets of peanut butter. Do you like the peanut butter straight? Do you like almond butter? Do you like the peanut butter with honey? What's the What's your favorite Justin's brand nut butter spread? <laughs> um, that is an interesting question. I think probably the peanut butter and honey one is a little sweeter than just the normal peanut butter, although there's not a lot of honey. But I think the best thing is that we had a few, uh, I think it was peanut butter or peanut and almond chocolate butter or something. Oh, it was almond, almond, but it was basically Nutella. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It was, it was Nutella anyway. But with so, almond butter, I think. Yeah. And so at the end of each lunch, that was like the, the quote unquote dessert. And it was just delicious, but I wouldn't necessarily recommend eating just those. Cause those are, those are pretty sweet, but like I said, delicious. So what's the most important thing that backpacking and trekking has taught you? Uh, I, I mentioned it when uh, talking about my appreciation for people who have preserved the land out there, but it is so important to have areas that are left natural. 
and I, I, I'm going to paraphrase this, but uh, when Lyndon Johnson signed the Wilderness Act in, I think, 1964, although I'm not 100% on the year, he said something along the lines of, if we want people to love and respect nature, we have to leave it natural so they know what it looks like. And if we change what it looks like and we add a human fingerprint to it, it's going to be hard to recognize and then the value of it may be lost. So I think that's what I've gained from being out there. Justin, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, of course. Before we go, I think it might be worth telling you about uh, something I found this summer in terms of backpacking meals. For a long time, I made my own uh, boil-in-a-bag backpacking meals where I would use a freezer bag and fill it with the ingredients I wanted and then pour water into it and eat out of the bag on the trail, which is a great method. And it worked for a long time for me, but I just found that ultimately the meals weren't that tasty and it took some work to prepare And so I started going back to looking at commercial meals, but there are a number of problems with commercial backpacking meals. One is often the size of the packaging. They don't fit well in bear cans. Another is the amount of calories. Often they have way too few calories to be realistic when they say they're for two people. Uh, They're often really barely enough for one person. And so you're taking up a lot of space in your bear can and not getting enough to eat. Another thing that's been going on is in my personal life, I've been trying to eat a lot better, a lot higher quality food, a lot more plant-based, a lot more whole foods. So I looked around on the internet and tried to find food that might match up with what I was looking for, for backpacking. And in my first trip this summer, which was back in June, before this this trip to Sequoia and Kings Canyon... Uh, Justin and I went on another trip up to the Trinity Alps as sort of a a test run before our uh, bigger hike in Sequoia and Kings Canyon. And before that trip, I bought some meals from a company called Outdoor Herbivore. And they make vegetarian and vegan backpacking meals. And I love the meals they make. So they are not a sponsor of the show, but I thought I'd mention Uh, the brand Outdoor Herbivore, just in case you also want to improve the quality of the meals you bring with you when you go backpacking. Uh, In addition to having good vegetarian and vegan options, they seem to use pretty high quality ingredients. But then there also are a few practical reasons I really like Outdoor Herbivore. One is that the way the packaging is done, it's packed fairly tightly so that it doesn't take up a lot of extra space. There's not a lot of air in the bags. So that you can pack the meals realistically in a bear can the way you need to for a long trip like this one. Also, they have plenty of calories per serving. Most of the meals are around 600 or more calories per serving. Some are more in the 500 plus range. But it's the amount of calories that you often get in a two-person meal from a lot of other companies that make commercial backpacking meals. So as a result, for someone who's hiking all day, This is a much better option than most of the meals that are out there on the market. Lastly, they've recently, it looks like, switched to sort of the boil-in-a-bag format, which a lot of the other companies do as well, where you can just pour hot water into the bag the meal's already in and let it hydrate, and then your meal's ready. 
And so for this trip with Justin to Sequoia and Kings Canyon for the entire week, we ate outdoor herbivore meals every dinner. They were great. So I highly recommend them and I hope that you give them a shot. A couple of the meals that I liked were the blackened quinoa and the chickpea sesame zeti, which is a pasta. So that was pretty good. And this is a small company based in the Sacramento, California area, I think. So always good to support a cottage industry company that uh, supports backpackers. So there you go. Outdoor herbivore. Check them out. All right. So I hope that Justin and I have inspired you to hike the High Sierra Canyons loop. And keep in mind that this podcast is entertainment and meant to spark your interest. If you decide to hike the trail, do your own research. Like anything else worth doing, outdoor adventure has risk. So when you go, pack your common sense. And when you get back, tell me how it went. If you have any questions or feedback on this episode or on anything else about the show, such as ideas for future episodes, including if you want to be a guest and talk about a trail you've hiked, reach out to me at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com. I mentioned this on our last episode, but just wanted to remind you that coming up on our next regular monthly episode, we're going to be going to the Ruby Crest Trail in northeastern Nevada. This is a really amazing alpine wilderness that rises out of the high desert of Nevada and has lots of lakes and an amazing trail that you can travel for several days on and finishes in beautiful Lamoille Canyon, which many say is the Yosemite of Nevada. That's next time on Trails Worth Hiking. So start planning your next hike. And before you know it, you'll be on the trail. Thanks for listening. But hold on, one more thing. When I'm on a long hike, and I'm tired and sweaty, and it's a hot day, there's one thing I always am looking for, and that is a shady rock. Nothing feels better than sitting down on a shady rock and cooling off, having a drink of water, a snack, letting the sweat dry a little before you get started again. And on this hike, the High Sierra Canyons Loop, I learned that I wasn't the only one that felt that way. I hope you enjoy the world premiere of Shady Rock by Justin Pendry. Justin, take us out. Oh, Shady Rock How you do me right Oh, Shady Rock In and out of sight I wanna stay here forever Or maybe just the night Oh, Shady Rock You're my heart's delight The days on the trail have made one thing clear to see I wish it wasn't so, but you're not the one for me 
the good news is the trail's the best place to be A little further ahead, another shady rock's waiting for me Hello again, shady rock Further down the path Seems like Mother Nature put you there So I could catch my breath Oh, Shady Rock You're my heart's delight Oh, Shady Rock You're the love of my life Oh, Shady Rock We got to the end. <laughs> All right. <sighs>